Exodus chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading in verse 8. It says, Now a new king arose over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply in the event of war. They will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor, and they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out, so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we again come before you and ask that you would give us understanding into your word. <clears throat> Help us to see you and your glorious faithfulness and trustworthiness so that we would believe and trust in you by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps you've heard of the story or watched the movie. The book was published in 1957 by Theodore Reisel, also known as Dr. Seuss. It was called The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. Perhaps you remember something of the story. The Grinch, who spent many years in seclusion and isolation away from Hoosville, plots a plan with his dog that he's going to ruin Christmas. And he specifically seeks to attack the Who's. And he's going to come in and break into the Who's house and steal all their belongings. Sure enough, he's able to steal the presents. But then he notices the Who's wake up on Christmas morning with all their belongings stolen and they're singing. They're still happy. And he realizes that he was not able to steal Christmas. Now, say, so what does that have to do with the message this morning? This morning we are going to look at three, not so much Grinches, but three thugs who tried to steal Christmas. Three thugs who sought to do all they could to go against God and His promises, but were unsuccessful. And because of this, you can sing on Christmas morning as you believe the promise of God. The first of these thugs we're going to find in the passage that we read this morning, way back in the book of Exodus, thousands of years before Jesus ever came, there was Pharaoh the fool. Pharaoh the fool. Now we do not know which Pharaoh this was, but we do have some insight in verse 8 that this Pharaoh 
arose in Egypt, and the text says that he did not know Joseph. Now, this is a Christmas message, and you might be tempted to think this is the Joseph uh, who would marry Mary, but that's another Joseph. This is the Joseph who was the Joseph of the coat of many colors, the, the Joseph who had uh, 11 brothers who sold him into slavery. And remember, he's down in Egypt, and he arises uh, within Egypt to this uh, elevated position. And uh, his brothers who sold him into slavery eventually come down, and he's able to forgive them. And he has them come into Egypt to protect them from the famine that's taking place. And as a result of all those events, the Hebrews are in Egypt for some 400 years. And also another backdrop that's important to this passage is a promise that God made to Joseph's grandfather, namely Abraham that he would be a father of many nations, that God would build up this great nation through Abraham. And so, but here these Hebrews are, uh, as people of slavery in the land of Egypt, and this Pharaoh, it says he did not know Joseph. Remember the, the Pharaoh who was over Joseph was a kind of kind and friendly towards Joseph. When this passage says he didn't know Joseph, it wasn't so much that he... They didn't know about him. He didn't give a rip about him. He didn't care about him or his fellow Hebrews. That's the idea. In verse 9, it says, He said to the people, Behold, the sons of Israel are more and mightier than, than we. In other words, these guys are breeding like rabbits. Look at all the babies around them. Look at all the children. Look how big their families are. They're multiplying. And as these young people grow up, they might get disgruntled with us. They might take over Egypt. And so we need to do something about this. And they began to, uh, Pharaoh began to give harsh labor rules pertaining to them. And, and that wasn't effective. And then in verse 15, it says, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. These are the OBGYNs of the day. These are the, the, the women involved in in bringing forth these children, helping these women in labor to have these children. He spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whose name was Shipra, and the other was named Pua. And he, and he said, When you are helping the Hebrew women give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then he shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So Pharaoh the fool comes up with this murderous plot. This murderous plot that when the midwives are delivering to, to kill any baby boys. Now why the boys? Obviously the boys would be the ones who would grow up and possibly and could be involved in a Hebrew militia. He wants the boys murdered. And this plan doesn't work. So in verse 22, Then Pharaoh commanded all the people, 
saying, Every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile, every daughter you are to keep alive. So now he commissions not only the Hebrew midwives, because this was, plan wasn't working out, because they weren't going along with the plan. In fact, they said the Hebrew women, they're, they're, uh, they're vigorous. In fact, the, the Hebrew word there is, that they're like animals. They just, you know, they just push out these babies before we even get there. We can't even put these boys to death. And so Pharaoh says, plan B. Plan B, I'm going to recruit all Egyptians. Anytime you see a baby Hebrew boy, that boy is to go into the Nile. Now, there's tremendous significance to this that we might miss because we don't understand what the Hebrews believed about the Nile. They believed in the God of the Nile River. And so, tossing the baby into the Nile, in one sense, would be convenient. You know, the baby just gets carried along down the river and dies. But also, it was a kind of way to wash their hands of responsibility. In other words, donate this baby to the Nile God, and that God will decide what He does with that child, whether He lets that child live or die. Now, This is certainly a diabolical plan, right? I mean, the murder of baby boys? But there's even more to it than that. You see, at the end of the book of Genesis, when Jacob, the father of the twelve tribes of Israel, the father of all this Hebrew tribe, was prophesying over each of his children. He came to Judah and he says to Judah in Genesis 49.10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to, who, and to him shall be born, shall be the obedience of the peoples. So as Jacob is prophesying over his children, he comes to Judah, one specific Uh, of his sons amongst the twelve and says the scepter shall not depart from Judah. What is a scepter? A scepter is the, the staff of a king. And so here is this promise just several chapters prior that a king will come from Judah. And here is this order from Pharaoh the fool to murder all the baby Hebrew boys. If it was successful... It would have ruined Christmas. There would be no Christmas. There would be no baby Jesus because, of course, it was Jesus who was from the line of Judah. It was Jesus who was the fulfillment of this promise, the the scepter not departing. So what does God do? The camera now focuses in on a Levite couple. Exodus chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son. Now we know from other passages the father was Amrah, the, the wife was Jochebed, in case you're thinking of names of children. The woman conceived and bore a son, and then she saw that he was beautiful. And she hid him for three months. Now, I don't know how they were able to hide this baby. 
You know, maybe maybe they dressed little Moses up with a bonnet and introduced him as you know with some female name. Uh, I, I don't know because remember it was okay for the girls to live, but for the boys they had to be tossed into the Nile at this point. She's able to keep it up for three months, but eventually it becomes obvious that this baby is going to get thrown into the Nile. Verse 3. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it with tar and pitch. And then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Now this is fascinating here. She makes this little basket. In fact, the, the, the word that's translated here where it says that, that she got a wicker basket, covered it with tar and pitch. This wicker basket, it's the idea, it's the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 6 of the ark. It's like a little baby boat. A little baby ark. Now any Hebrew reader of this immediately is thinking, something tremendous is going on here. God is delivering His people through this little baby in the baby ark. So she puts this baby into this little baby ark and puts the baby amongst the reeds by the bank of the Nile. You can just imagine Moses' sister Miriam following this baby boat. Jochebed and Amra not even wanting to look and see what happens to this baby and they perhaps just go home. Maybe they're on their knees praying on behalf of this little baby that they just put in the Nile River in their baby boat. Verse 4, the sister stood at a distance to find out what happened to him. And sure enough, verse 5, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid. And she brought it to her. And when she opened it, wah, wah, she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying. And she had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, um, Would you like me to go and call for a nurse from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. So here Miriam, following the baby, watches and observes from a distance, and and sure enough, it's Pharaoh's daughter who, who finds this baby ark and opens it up and, and, and hears the, the crying child. And, and wouldn't you know, in God's providence, it's a woman, Pharaoh's daughter, who would have compassion upon this child. And sure enough, Miriam pipes up and says, well, 
Would you like one of the Hebrew women to come and nurse and feed this child? I, I think I have someone in mind. And so it winds up Moses' own biological mother who gets paid to nurse little baby Moses. And all this is God working quietly and behind the scenes. And no doubt Jochebed, the mother of Moses, and Amra, the father, reared Moses in the Scriptures, eventually having to say goodbye to him into Pharaoh's court. But God quietly working behind the scenes to save Christmas, to save the promise. And sure enough, in verse 10, The child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, Because I drew him out of the water. Wink, wink. Drew him out of the water? Pharaoh's daughter spoke better than she knew, right? Draw him out of the water. Yes, she did draw him out of the water, but that's exactly how God would deliver His people, would be drawing them out and through the water. The Red Sea. So here, the deliverer is delivered. So that God's promise would not fall to the ground. So that Judah's line would be preserved. So that the seed, the promise, forever king of God, that line would be preserved. That's the first Grinch thug who sought to steal Christmas. Pharaoh the fool. Fast forward some years, eventually the Hebrews are delivered out of Egypt and they're placed into the promised land and and they have a desire for a king. And they want to be like the other nations. And, And so God gives them a king like the other nations, Saul. But God has a young man in his crosshairs who would be the king who he would desire, namely King David. And David would succeed Saul. And and God, uh, uh, some years later in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David wants to build a house for God. He wants to build a temple for God as they're finally now on the land and as a stable people. And God says, David, you're not going to build a house, but I'm going to build a house for you. And there was a play on words there that God would build a forever dynasty through David. And so now you have this promise from Judah that gets narrowed and it's focused down through David. And if you read 1 and 2 Kings, you know something of the history of Israel that there was a couple good kings here and there, but most of them were pretty rotten. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'll introduce you to Athaliah the Arrogant. This is the grandma from hell. Athaliah. 2 Kings chapter 11. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal offspring. We don't have time to go into all the details, but basically, her son, 
Ataliah's son Ahaziah was assassinated by Jehu, who had become king in the north. Ataliah, she was the wife of Joram, who murdered all of his brothers. When he became king, he wanted to eliminate all the competition. So uh, when Joram, Ataliah's husband, becomes king, he has all of his brothers murdered. And years later, the Philistines wind up taking all the sons of Joram captive. So, so the, the descendants of the kingly line, it's getting pretty thin. And after Ataliah's son, Ahaziah, is assassinated, Ataliah sees a power vacuum here. Oh, one more detail. Ataliah was the daughter of Ahab. Ahab was the evil king of the north whose wife was Jezebel. And so when verse 1 says that she arose and destroyed all the royal offspring, the only royal offspring that would have been left would have been her grandchildren. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think of Grammy. (laughs) I think of soft, sweetness, gushiness, oozing love. This is the grandma from hell. This is stone cold grandmama. This woman is trying to kill off the Davidic line which God had promised this forever king to come through. So what does God do? Verse 2. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, the sister of Ahaziah. So this would be an aunt. An aunt seeing all of her nephews heading to the slaughter. In haste she took Joash the son of Ahaziah and stole him from among the king's sons who were being put to death and placed him and his nurse in the bedroom. And so they hid from Ataliah and he was put and he was not put to death. So he was hidden with her in the house of the Lord six years while Ataliah was reigning over the land. So Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, Aunt Jehoshaphat, Auntie J, in a risky move, risks her life. She snatches up the baby who is evidently young enough to still be nursing and she grabs her nurse and she hides them in the temple. And this happens for six years. For six years. And the rescue of this baby boy was on the down low. For six years, imagine being in Israel. Imagine you're a faithful Jewish person in Israel and you're reading your Bible and you're seeing these promises that were given to David. You're seeing this promise that the scepter will not depart from Judah and you're looking at the reality of the situation and there is no heir of David. There are no descendants of Judah. The grandma from hell is on the throne. 
And she is a wicked, vile woman. And this takes place for six years. Imagine you would be thinking, has God really been faithful to His promises? Is God really going to come through and bring a forever king? How could He? Verse 4. Now in the seventh year of Jehoiada, now in the seventh year Jehoiada sent and brought captains of hundreds of the Karaites and the guard and brought them to the house of the Lord. Then he made a covenant with them and put them under oath in the house of the Lord and showed them the king's sons. The king's son, I'm sorry. So here is Jehoiada, a faithful priest who's been involved in the rescue of this single lone survivor of the Davidic line. And he comes and explains this to the temple guard. This is like the temple militia. And he introduces, this is Joash. Son of Ahaziah, a descendant of David. I mean, you could just imagine the music of Don Francisco in the background. He's alive. He. I mean, this would have been amazing. The descendant of David is alive. Verse 12, Then he brought the king's son out and put a crown and gave him the testimony and they made him king and anointed him six-year-old king. Any six-year-olds in the room? Wouldn't you like that, huh? They made him king and anointed him. They clapped their hands and said, Long live the king! Here comes grandma. Verse 13, when Adaliah heard the noise of the guard and of the people, she came to the people of the house of the Lord. She looked and behold, the king was standing by the pillar according to the custom with the captains and the trumpeters beside the king. All the people of the land rejoiced and blew the trumpets. Then Adaliah tore her clothes and cried, Treason! Treason! And Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains of hundreds who were appointed over the army and said to them, Bring her out between the ranks and whoever follows her to put to death with the sword. For the priest said, Let her not be put to death in the house of the Lord. And they seized her. And when she had arrived at the horse's entrance of the king's house, she was put to death there. Ataliah, had she been successful, God's promise would have fell to the ground. Has she succeeded in killing all of the royal family, including little baby Joash, there would be no Christmas. One more thug. Of the Pharaoh the fool, Ataliah the arrogant, and the butcher of Bethlehem. Matthew chapter 2. This one's a little bit more familiar. Matthew chapter 2. 
Now Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes and people, he inquired of them where Messiah was to be born, where the anointed king was to be born. They said, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And they quote from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, written 700 years before Jesus was even born. And you, O Bethlehem, land of of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. And after hearing the king, they went their way. And the star, which had been seen in the east, went before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And they saw the star and they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening the treasures, they presented him with gifts of gold, <clears throat> frankincense, and myrrh. And so this is, the, this is the situation. These magi, probably from, from, from Persia, modern day Iran or Iraq area, these are kingmakers. They come and they, they're following the star and, and perhaps they had learned some, some prophecies of Messiah from Daniel way back when Daniel and his three friends were, were, were captive in Babylon and Persia. Uh, however they knew, we, we don't know for sure, but, but they come seeking Messiah. They have this knowledge, this revelation that Messiah has been born and they come to Herod, and no doubt Herod is quaking in his sandals at this point because these guys are kingmakers. They're important officials from the Persian government. And he has to inquire from the religious leaders as to where Messiah was to be born. And they unravel the scroll of Micah and find in Micah chapter 5 verse 2 that's this prophecy that the promised king, the king that was promised to Judah, the king that was promised through David, this king would one day be born in a tiny little village town like Sebring. Bethlehem. Just a little podunk town. And so these magi, these kingmakers, go to Bethlehem and they find the baby and they worship the baby. And they bring gifts. But you see, the butcher of Bethlehem sees a power threat here. Herod sees, well, if he's the king, and I'm the king, well... There can't be two kings. So I must eliminate the competition, much like Pharaoh needed to eliminate the competition, much like Ataliah needed to eliminate the competition. And so he does what seems to be unthinkable. Let's 
pick up the story in verse 12. And they, and having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Verse 13, Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. And then the unthinkable. Verse 16, Then Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi. He became very enraged, and he sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which had been determined by the Magi. So we do not know how old Jesus was at this point, but he's evidently either still newborn, an infant, somewhere under two years old, because Herod projects any baby boy who's two years old and under needs to die. And again, this is a diabolical attempt to murder, to thwart God's plan and God's promise with a forever king. But God, what does He do? He sends an angel to communicate to Joseph through a dream to get out of Bethlehem and to go to Egypt. And no doubt they were able to take those gifts that were given from the Magi and to, to fund their trip all the way to Egypt to get to safety. So that God delivered the Deliverer yet once again. So that God's promise would still stand. So what do we, what do we learn from these passages? Of course, this is not really about the three thugs who tried to steal Christmas. It's really about the God who is faithful to His promises. The first point I want you to take home is to praise the praiseworthy God. I mean, why does God do it this way? I mean, He could have done it a multitude of other ways. I mean, before Atalai even got to the throne, He could have, you know, had some poison put in her food. And she just kills over. He could have done it a multitude of different ways, but, 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 but the way in which He did it, it's almost as if him and his promises are on the ropes that he, he delights to work through the weakness of humanity. So that all in all, so that, so that nobody would say, well, look what we did. Look what man has done. Look what the Jewish people accomplished. No, you're saying, wow. Look what God did. So that there was almost zero human instrumentality involved. Human weakness shot through so that God would get the praise. And we, of course, we love the underdog story, right? We love to watch Apollo Creed give a nobody from Philadelphia a chance at the title. 
We love to see Rocky Balboa go the distance with Apollo Creed. We love to see Rocky Balboa go against the great giant Drago. We love the story of the underdog. God evidently likes something of the story of the underdog as well so that He gets the glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 25 to 31 says, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world to despise, and the despised God has chosen, and the things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are. Why? Why, God, do you do this? Do it this way. Why do you choose the weak things of the world to demonstrate your strength? Verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. But by His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as is written, that him who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, each of these passages and the way in which God worked in each of these to preserve that kingly line so that Jesus would one day be born and and, and that the forever King would have come was so that He would show Himself great so that we would stand up and cheer like we were at a football game and say, yes! Glory to God! Praise the praiseworthy One. And so that it's no wonder. As the Gabriel said to Joseph when he found out that Mary was pregnant, call him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. How would this great God go about saving his people from their sins? In the weakest way imaginable. As this Jesus would grow up, as He was delivered from death through the butcher of Bethlehem, Herod. But the plan was for Him to die, not as a baby. But He would live for 33 and a half years. As John Bunyan said, He would weave a perfect garment of righteousness for those 33 and a half years only to give it away. And how would He save His people from their sins? He would be suspended between heaven and earth on a Roman cross, publicly executed. What greater weakness would there be? But in that seemingly insignificant event of an order of a Roman execution to to a Jewish male... He would be bearing in His body all the full weight of hell that sinners deserve. So that the Apostle Paul would write in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That God would deliver His people from their sins and the hell that they deserve by pouring hell on His own Son. Weakness. But God was not through with this. 
He didn't stay dead, did he? Because a dead king is not a forever king. And so God raised him from the dead. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he's in heaven today. Waiting his return. Friend, have you trusted in this God who works through weakness? Have you trusted in Jesus to take the punishment for your sin, to take the hell that you deserve? Friend, if you haven't, trust in Christ alone today. He absorbed all the punishment, all the guilt that we deserve so that we rebels can be forgiven. But you also have to yield to Him and His kingship. Submit yourself to Him and say, Jesus, You're the King now. You call the shots in my life. But not only to praise the praiseworthy God, but you also must trust the trustworthy God. Turn to an interesting passage in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 12, towards the end of the story. Last book of the Bible, right before the book of Maps. (coughs) Revelation chapter 12, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Now, if you're familiar with that imagery, that was the the same dream that Joseph, the first Joseph we mentioned back in the book of Exodus and Genesis, that was the dream that he had, that that his brothers as twelve stars, that that his his father as the sun, his mother as as the moon, and and his brothers as twelve stars would bow down before him. And so this is the image. This is, this is speaking of Israel. Verse 2, that she, this woman clothed in this way, was with child and, and she cried out being in labor and in pain to give birth. Then another sign arose in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. So that he, so that when she gave birth, he might devour the child. Sound familiar? A dragon? No doubt hearkening back to Genesis chapter 3. A woman giving birth? A dragon seeking to devour? This is a, this is a theme that's been set up all along. A great cosmic theme of the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. Verse 4, And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour the child. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Who would that be speaking about? Give you a hint, it begins with a J. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Interesting. In an economy of words, this describes the life, the death, burial, and resurrection, ultimately the ascension of Jesus. 
He's caught up to God and to His throne. That's where Jesus is now. Then the woman fled to the wilderness where she had a place prepared by her God. Just like Israel in the wilderness, so God's people are in the wilderness prepared by God. In other words, we also live in a time of darkness and quietness. I mean, think about the times that we just mentioned, where it seemed like the kingdom of God was a kind of smoldering wick that could easily be put out, like a candle where the wax is seeming to almost engulf that little flame and it's just kind of flickering there and it could so easily, with the slightest little breeze, be put out. Think about the time when Pharaoh is upon the throne. And God's people are being persecuted. God's people are being oppressed. Their babies are being murdered. They're forced into hard labor. And it seems like, has will God be faithful to His promise? Will He come through for His people? We say, well, that's pretty radical times. Far different than today, is it? How many Christians have the Boko Haram of Nigeria? How many Christians have the Boko Haram murdered this past year? What's it like for a Christian to live in Indonesia or in northern India? have your houses burned to the ground purely for the reason that you're a Christian? What is it like to live under the constant scrutiny of the government of the People's Republic of China because you're a Christian? Well, we may live in a bubble here, but that's not how it is for most of our Christians Right now. Ataliah, imagine living during this time where it seems like there's no hope, there's no descendant of David. Wondering, has God failed in his promises? That God was quietly working behind the scenes, right? And he was working through faithful instruments in his hand, right? During the time of Pharaoh, he's working through Shipra and Pua, the Hebrew midwives. He's working through Amra and Jochebed, Moses' parents. In the time of Atalai, he's working through Jehoshabad and Jehoiada the priest. And wouldn't you know, in each of these instances, it's looking towards children. And raising a future generation. Trusting, let me just be faithful to pour into this child and to do what's right. And God uses it to bring about deliverance. Similarly in Matthew chapter 2, imagine being in that Bethlehem small village How many funerals 
or plan for little baby boys and wondering, has God fallen asleep? Has God forgotten about His people? Friend, are you tempted to look at the dark times in which we live and think, has God fallen asleep at the wheel? Oh no, my friend. He hasn't. Yes, we may live in a wilderness, but God is quietly working behind the scenes like He was for those six years under the reign of Ataliah. There was an heir to the throne. And although Jesus may not be here physically and bodily, He will return. In fact, you sang about it, but you didn't even know about it. Because Christmas hymn, Joy to the World, is actually not about the first coming of Jesus. It's about the second coming of Jesus. He will make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. He doesn't do that in the first coming. He does that in the second coming. Where He reverses the curse. God will be faithful to His promises. Friend, we must be faithful to Him. We must trust in this trustworthy God in our quiet, seemingly insignificant lives to pour into future generations, whether you have children or whether you don't have children, to rear them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. If you're an aunt, you're an uncle, pour into your nieces and nephews. If you be involved in teaching Sunday school, be involved with that. Quietly but faithfully trust the God who is trustworthy. Praise the God who is praiseworthy. But be loyal to Him. So you can sing this Christmas. Like the Who's of Whoville, the Grinch was not successful. These three thugs were not successful, but indeed Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was delivered to live a perfect life, to die a perfect death, to be raised from the dead in the language of John and Revelation, to be caught up to heaven. And guess what? He will one day come back as God's forever King. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank You and praise You for Your Word, Your promise that is faithful and true. Lord, indeed, we do live in dark times, but we can know that You are faithful to all Your promises. Not one of them will fall to the ground. Your promise that You delivered upon in the first coming of Christ, but also Your promise in His second coming. And even we cry out, Lord, come quickly. In Jesus' name, Amen.